Well, what a passage. <laughs> what a passage. So as you know, over the last few months, we have been spending time exploring the book of Genesis. And we have seen, in recent weeks, the life of Abraham. We've seen him repeatedly struggle to completely trust God as God directed. Last week, we saw that God told Abraham that the plains of the city, um, the, sorry, the cities in the plains, rather, were going to be destroyed because of their utter wickedness. We saw that Abraham attempted to negotiate with the Lord in an effort to save Lot and his family that were living in the city of Sodom. Now, one of the challenges, of course, that's been mentioned already today is working through Scripture chapter by chapter, verse by verse, is that we cannot skip over the difficult passages or simply pick the comfortable ones to talk about. And today's passage is perhaps such an example. But God has brought this passage to this church at this time. And I pray that the Lord will open up our hearts to receive the truth of his word and that we'll be convicted that it still applies to us today. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you in need of your spirit to open our hearts and minds to the truth of your word. We ask that you stir us, Lord. Stir us to the truth of scripture and may we humbly seek you for forgiveness and for cleansing for all that we do that is not like of you. I pray, Lord, that you will hide me, a sinner who is saved by grace, by your grace. I simply ask that you hide me, Lord, and you lift up Jesus. Amen. So our sermon today is going to be in four parts. The first part, we will be looking at the holiness of God. And in part number two, we'll be looking at the sin or the sins of Sodom. Third part, we're looking at contamination. What impact does sin have? And then finally, how will we respond? Our application. So the holiness of God. Now, in order to fully understand and appreciate the events described in Genesis chapter 19, we must first try to comprehend the holiness of God. Now, if you turn with me, please, to this scripture here, you see Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. If you have your phones and you want to take photographs of any of the slides, please feel free to do so, because there are quite a few for us to go through. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8. Here we see a vision of the throne room of God. John sees the 24 elders on thrones with golden crowns on their heads. He then sees the four living creatures covered in eyes and each with six wings who continually cry out day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now this is the second time in scripture that we see that what is often referred to as the tris aion or the three holies. The first instance of this is in Isaiah chapter 63, uh, sorry, Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 3, I do apologize. And we find again in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 3, Isaiah is seeing a vision of heaven and he sees God being worshipped by the heavenly hosts and they exclaim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
the whole earth is full of his glory. A few verses later in verse 5, we see that Isaiah in chapter 6 exclaims, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now why in both instances, in Isaiah and Revelation, why is the word holy repeated three times? Is there any significance, you may ask? Well, the short answer is yes. There is great significance in the fact that holy is repeated three times. In Jewish culture, when something was repeated three times, it indicated the ultimate expression of that quality. So, holy being repeated three times expresses the ultimate and complete sense that God is holy. And as the late R.C. Sproul puts it, only once in sacred scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. Only once is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession. The Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Not that he's merely holy, or even holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. It does say that he is holy, 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 that the whole earth is full of his glory. Scripture uses this trisayion to make clear the point that God is completely unique. He is completely separate from us and everything else he has created. God's holiness means that he's separate. God is unlike us. He is unique to himself. He is in a category all of his own. God's all holiness also means that he is transcendent. Every individual aspect of God is uniquely glorious, that it cannot be fully measured or comprehended. It is beyond the limits and borders of everything. He's greater in every way than all else. And God's holiness means that he is pure. That is to say that every aspect of God's being is altogether faultless, good, and perfect. In his book, when people are big and God is small, Edward Welch states, holy can be defined as separate, set apart, distinct, or uncontaminated. In reference to God, holy means that he is different from us. None of his attributes can be understood by comparison to his creatures. Holiness is not one of many attributes of God. It is his essential nature and seen in all of his qualities. Because God is holy, 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 we need to understand the interaction that God has with humans from this starting point. You see, for a holy God to destroy sinful humans is totally right and correct because he is holy. The fact that he so often chooses to spare us what we deserve is amazing grace. So going back to Genesis chapter 19, we need to understand the story as it unfolds in the light of the fact that God is holy and his actions are always based on his holiness. Now this leads us to the second part of our sermon, the sin 
or sins of Sodom. What were the sins of Sodom? For what reason was it destroyed? If you will, turn with me please to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16 and verses 49 to 50. Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 to 50. And here we will find Ezekiel speaking or recording. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Here Ezekiel provides a comprehensive list of sins relating to social just injustice. The first sin mentioned is pride. And it seems the citizens of Sodom were filled with pride at their own self-importance, much like the citizens of Babel were, which we read about earlier in Genesis. We see that in addition to pride, they had wealth and prosperous ease, but their sin was that they did not use this to help the poor and the needy. They watched the suffering of the needy and did nothing to help with, from the excess that they had. Next, we see that Sodom is described as haughty, which means, of course, arrogant or conceited. So far, we are seeing a city that is, has ample resources, the ability to provide for the needs of others, but because it's proud and arrogant, it continues to satisfy its own wants and desires rather than bless others. Now, revisionists, that is, people who would want us to conclude that the only sins of Sodom were its lack of social care and hospitality, stop there in this passage. They don't go any further. And they largely ignore the end of verse 50 because it's not really convenient to a progressive agenda. You see, the final part of verse 50, God describes Sodom as doing an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Notice the singular terms used in the text, an abomination, when I saw it. So in this passage, Ezekiel, so in this passage in Ezekiel, we have identified a number of sins that Sodom um, committed that displeased God, but only one that is yet unnamed that he calls an abomination and was the cause of him removing Sodom from the face of the earth. Now, what sin did the people of Sodom practice that God called an abomination? Well, Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 22 tells us, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Moses then goes on to say in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13, if a man lies with a male, with a, with a male, sorry, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination and they shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Now, given the passages we've just read, it becomes clear what the abomination of Sodom was. But some might say, well, that's mentioned in the Old Testament laws of Leviticus. It's not relevant today. Now, to those, I would simply say, well, the New Testament also very clearly and unashamedly 
condemns homosexual practice. Romans chapter um, 1, verse 24 to 27. Romans 1, 24, 27. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. The Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament is clear. Homosexual practice is an abomination. It is a sin. And just like any other kind of sin, it has serious consequences. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 to 11, tells us that, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, or adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, and in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, it clearly, in the church of Corinth, there were Christians who, just like us, just like us, before we came to Christ, they practiced all manner of sins. But notice Paul's comment here, such were some of you. Since being washed in the blood of Christ, the Corinthians are now justified and sanctified and walk in accordance with God's will, just like everyone must do who claims to be born again. I can't be truly living a born-again life and at the same time be living exactly as I did before I was born again. If I was sexually immoral before Christ, I can't continue to practice that now. If I was a thief before Christ, I can't continue to thieve now. If I was a drunkard before Christ, I cannot continue to get drunk now. And if I was a swindler before coming to Christ, I cannot continue to swindle now. All of this is sin. Yes, all of this is sin, but some who might be dealing with homosexuality might claim, but I was born this way. I was born this way. And to that and every other expression of sin, Jesus lovingly says, you must be born again. You must be born again. In mercy, even though homosexuality is a sinful way of life, Paul makes it clear here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 to 11, it is possible for a homosexual to be washed from his or her sin through the saving grace of Jesus Christ and to live a new life in Christ. But as we look at Genesis chapter 19, many revisionists assert that homosexual practice was not the issue in the text. 
They claim it was a sex crime, uh, specifically gang rape that was portrayed in the story and not a so-called loving union between consenting adults, which is often claimed in same-sex relationships today. Revisionists claim that Sodom is not about homosexuality, but about violence. Well, let's look at the passage carefully so that we can find out for ourselves if that is in fact the case. Look at verse 5 and 7. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Notice the phrase here used for sex, know them. It's the same phrase that is used to describe Adam and Eve consummating their love for each other and producing offspring in Cain and Abel. The Hebrew, the Hebrew term translated to know in the ESV in Genesis chapter 4 is yada. And it's the same yada that is used in Genesis chapter 19. That is to say, the men of Sodom were offering, according to their own thinking, something that was not an act of sexual violence towards these men, but rather, as they saw it, an intimate and sexually good time. They were simply offering the men that were they, that they considered a, they were simply offering the men what they considered to be a joyful night of I say joyful night of sexually immoral pleasure. Reflecting on this, the book of Jude, verse 7, says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities were likewise, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Sodom and the surrounding cities were not destroyed because of attempted gang rape or because of its poor record of social justice issues. According to Jude, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities in the plain were destroyed because they pursued unnatural desire related to sexual immorality. Genesis chapter 2, verse 22, we see that God gave sexual union to Adam and Eve as a gift for marriage. It's something that God ordained. It's his divine institution. It's not a human one. Consequently, only God, not humans, has the right to define the terms of this institution. In other words, God invented sex and created it to be part of marriage between one man and one woman, who together represent the one flesh that God ordained in Genesis. Speaking on this, Kevin DeYoung wrote in his book, Homosexuality, sexuality in the context of heterosexual marriage is not only good, but exclusively good. Only heterosexual marriage relationships can show forth the complementary design of men and women. According to the Apostle Paul, one of the purposes of marriage is to show forth the mystery of Christ and the church. Ephesians 5 verse 32. If marriage can be construed as a man and a man, or a woman and a woman, what is left? of the glorious mystery of Christ and the church. We are left only with Christ and Christ, or church 
and church. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah served as a warning and a reminder that God is holy, 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 and he has no place in his universe for sin. The whole world deserves to be destroyed because of sin, and one day it will be. But until then, it's God's, it's God's mercy and grace that holds back what we deserve so that we can hear and respond to the gift that he offers us, a transforming relationship with his son, Jesus. Moving through to point three, the contamination. Now, in the third part, I'd like us to focus our attention now to the issue of contamination of Lot and his family. Now, as we know, Lot and his uncle Abraham separated in Genesis chapter 13. Lot pitched his tents towards Sodom, and Genesis chapter 13 verse 3 forewarns us that the people of Sodom were wicked and great sinners against God, but it spares us in Genesis chapter 13 the details at that time. Now, we know that Lot moved towards Sodom, and eventually, rather than just pitching his tents towards the city, he moves into the city itself. And when we meet Lot in Genesis chapter 19, verse 1, we find him at the gate of the city. Now, it's well documented in Middle Eastern culture that the gates of a city were where the elders and respected men of the community would conduct important civic duties and exercise authority within a city. So the implication here is that Lot has become an established member of the community, a leader within Sodom. Lot meets with the angels at the entrance to the city, and we know that he invites them to come and stay in his home. Verse 4 and 5 tells us that, Lot's, um, that after Lot's visitors eat, but before they retire for the evening, the men of the city, both young and old, surround Lot's house. They make it clear to Lot that they are here to yadda, or sexually know, the visitors. Notice Lot's response to them in verse 7. I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Did you see that? He calls them brothers. Lot considers these men his brothers. He considered them his family, his people. He identified with them as his own. Lot was not brothers with them by birth or by nation because the people of Sodom were descendants of Ham and Lot was a descendant of Shem. He called them his brothers because he wanted to be accepted by them. He wanted to belong and be a part of that community. But verse 9 tells us, or shows us rather, what the people of Sodom really thought about Lot and how they didn't consider him one of them. Now Lot was a man who was in tension with what he knew in his heart about God and his longing to be accepted by the people of Sodom. Second Peter chapter 2 verses 6 to 8 show us that if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. You see, Lot knew that life in Sodom was wicked, 
and sinful and it grieved and tormented his soul, but yet he still wanted to belong there. His heart knew the place was corrupt, but yet he still longed to be accepted by the world in which he lived. Now this tension between knowing Sodom was wicked and yet still wanting to be a part of life there had contaminated his thinking. In verse 8, we read a suggestion from Lot that makes me as a father sick to my stomach. He offers the crowd that want to yada his guests. He offers them his two virgin daughters to sexually do as they please with instead. We read that and we are shocked. How can a loving father suggest such a thing? Now here is where we find a clear example of how sinful Sodom had corrupted Lot's reasoning. Day after day, Lot saw the degrading and evil life in Sodom, and over time, it subtly and imperceptibly caused Lot to compromise his faith, little by little. And over time, this impacted the way he saw right from wrong, good from evil. Lot had become contaminated by Sodom. As A.W. Tozer puts it, one compromise here, another there, and soon enough the so-called Christian and the man in the world look the same. Here was Lot, a man Peter calls righteous, a man God rescues from Sodom, but he can't even see that life in Sodom has changed his standard of morality. It has contaminated his thinking in a way he can't even begin to understand. Again, A.W. Tozer puts it like this, religion today is not transforming people, rather it is being transformed by people. It's not raising the moral level of society, it is descending to society's own level and congratulating itself that it scored a victory because society is smiling, accepting its surrender. Lot descended to the level of his society when he offered his daughters in exchange for the safety of his guests. He had made himself like the people of Sodom rather than stand firm to godly principles and instructions. He was surrounded by corruption and he had not realized that the corruption was affecting his family and himself too. He was not remaining true to God's word but rather was subtly influenced by the thinking of the world. Lot had become like a good orange that was added to the fruit that you see in that basket there, in that uh, tray. If I took an orange and placed it amongst them there, what would happen to the good one left in there unchecked over time? It would spoil, yes? And we see that after years and years of life in Sodom, Lot and his family had been tainted by the rot that affected Sodom. Now, whilst preparing this sermon, I'd been reading some work by Spurgeon, and I was struck and amazed at how the passage in particular I was reading could have been written yesterday. It is so of the time that we are living in today, but yet, He's reflecting on the church of his time. Spurgeon wrote, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world, 
has so much influence over the church. Sodom had influenced Lot and his family. We see that the angels had to drag Lot back into the house and tell him plainly that they were going to destroy the cities of the plain and that he needed to uh, warn his family and the rest of his, his family. Lot speaks with his sons-in-law, but they reject his invitation to be saved, thinking it's just Lot talking foolishness. And by daybreak, the angels urge Lot and his family to leave the city. But at the start of verse 16, we read two tragic words. He lingered. Lot lingered. Lot thought about all that he had accomplished in Sodom, his wealth, his status. He was a leader in the community. He had privilege and authority, and all of this caused him to linger. Verse 16 tells us that the angels literally had to drag him by the hand and lead him with his wife and his daughters out of the city. But notice why they did this. Notice why the angels dragged Lot by the hand. Verse 16, the Lord being merciful to him. The Lord being merciful to him. I think it's fair to say that by every measurable standard we might have, Lot did not deserve saving. His righteousness, like ours, was filthy rags. But God in his mercy saves Lot. What an amazing joy that we have to know that God is so merciful and that despite our stubbornness and refusal to follow him quickly, he still reaches out in mercy to save us. Sadly, Lot's thinking was still contaminated. The angel made it clear that they had been sent to destroy the cities of the plain and Lot must head to the hills. Instead, he begs them to allow him and his family to move to another smaller city. So entrenched in Lot is the hunger for a life similar to the one he had in Sodom that even in this critical time, he's looking for a city once more. Now the angels agree and because of this, his request they spare the city of Zoar and Lot and his family head there instead. Lot and family are told not to look back but to run straight to this city. Lot's wife of course as we know ignores the instruction and her fate is sealed immediately. And we see that Lot's sojourning in Zoar does not last long. Because verse 30 tells us that Lot and his daughters flee from Zohar and head to the hills as they were originally instructed to. Now we don't know for certain what caused them to flee the smaller city. Perhaps it was fear that God would destroy that small city after all. Or perhaps the citizens of Zohar, they forced Lot to leave. Once they saw the flames from heaven pour down onto the other cities in the valley, maybe they feared for themselves by Lot being there. The truth is we may never know for certain what caused Lot to leave, but what we can be certain of is that the contamination of Sodom continued in the hills when Lot's virgin daughters committed incest with him and thought nothing of it. Part four, how will we respond? How will we respond? The first thing I want to, application point I'd like to think about is that God is holy, holy, holy. God gives us an invitation to come to know him and delight in him and his holiness. 
His holiness is the basis of our salvation. It's the foundation of the gospel. God is holy and all forms of sin separate us from God and therefore only he can save us from sin. It is the only, it's only the holiness of God that makes provision for our salvation. As Jonathan Edwards puts it, a true love of God must begin with a delight in his holiness and not with a delight in any other attribute. For no other attribute is truly lovely without this. Friends, are we delighting in the holiness of God? Are we looking at him and declaring like Isaiah, woe is me for I am undone, a man of unclean lips. Christ invites us to know the Father through him. The more we experience him daily in his word, the more we'll be transformed by his indwelling spirit. The more we'll be able to see the majesty and beauty of our Saviour and understand our need for him. The picture of the 24 elders casting their crowns at Jesus' feet show us that the redeemed are those who understand the holiness of God and follow him in awe and reverence. Is God holy for me? Is God holy for you? Are we seeing God as holy, holy, holy? Or are we taking him and everything about him seriously? Are we coming to him in awe and reverence? Or are we just coming to him casually thinking that that'll do? God is looking for a people who know and understand that he is holy 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 application point two sin is still sin even if the world tells me it's not now i'd like to share a quote a very short quote from a sermon by a pastor called randy smith and in it he said did you ever notice how recent major theological shifts in the church acceptance of evolution fornication so-called gay marriage, etc. The list is endless. Have come not as a result of Christians studying their Bibles, but rather the shifts have come from the pressure of the world that has persuaded Christians to believe contrary to what is in their Bible. Friends, we live in a time when to hold a position that you stand on the Bible and want to live by it completely is considered by some to be an act of hate, bigotry, and division. The world has convinced many within the church that holding biblical views today is wrong and that we need to be more progressive in our thinking and no longer look at sin as being something that God hates in our lives. In fact, some would say that in certain cases, sin should be embraced and welcomed in the church. In an effort to align itself and be accepted by the world, many professed Christians would claim that homosexual practice is acceptable but it's clear that the Bible repeatedly speaks against this, just as it does with every other kind of sin. We need to be serious about this. We need to understand what this is. Are we prepared to stand on God's word, or are we gonna follow the world and its agenda? If we stand on God's word, we will for sure be at odds with the prevailing thinking. But why should we be concerned? If we are following God, it doesn't matter if the world is against us. 
Jesus himself warns us that the world will be against us for following him. We have a duty to remain faithful to God and to his word. As Francis Schaeffer, the Christian writer, puts it, here is the great evangelical disaster. The failure of the evangelical world to stand for truth as truth. There is only one word for this, namely accommodation. The evangelical church has accommodated to the world spirit of the age. First, there has been accommodation on scripture so that many who call themselves evangelicals hold a weakened view of the Bible and no longer affirm the truth of all the Bible teaches. Truth not only in religious matters, but in areas of science, history and morality. This accommodation has been costly. First, in destroying the power of scriptures to confront the spirit of our age, and second, in allowing the further slide of our culture. Thus we must say with tears that it is the evangelical accommodation to the world spirit around us, to the wisdom of this age, which removed evangelical church from standing against the breakdown of our culture. Sin is still sin, and God's word is what defines it. If we are to live for the Jesus of the Bible, we must be people who are not afraid to stand on the teachings of the Bible. Again, to quote Francis Schaeffer, obedience to God's word is the watershed and the failure of the evangelical world to take a biblical stand on crucial issues of the day can only be seen as a failure to live life under the full authority of God's word. Point number three. How have I been contaminated? How are we compromising, compromising with the world? For me, one of the saddest aspects of Genesis chapter 19 is Lot and his daughter's response to the contamination that they'd been exposed to in Sodom. Namely, Lot offering his daughters to the crowd as a compromise with them. His sense of what was right and what was wrong had been shaped by Sodom standards and not God's. Lot had sided with the world and determined what was good based on what the world's standards were. He couldn't see how far he was from God's standards of goodness. Friends, let's think seriously. Have we been so exposed to what the world tells us is right that we've forgotten what God says? Have we been so contaminated by the world that we base our standards of what God wants on the world's thinking rather than God's word? We're in grave danger if we do so. We need to be people that stand firm on God's word. It must be the basis of our belief and practice. Otherwise, we run the risk of being seduced by the teachings and influences of the world without even realizing it. Lot was very matter of fact about offering his daughters. He couldn't see how negatively Sodom had corrupted his thinking. John chapter 17, verses 14 to 17, we find Jesus' prayer for his followers. And he says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. What has Jesus given us? He's given us his Father's word, and he has done so that we might be sanctified in the truth. Jesus claims 
Jesus claims that God's word is truth. Jesus' prayer is that we know that we are in the world, but not of the world, because his truth keeps us on his path. Jesus doesn't want us to be conformed to the world, but transformed by him. And it's my prayer today that we will humbly come to God, seeking for him to sanctify us in his truth and in his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are in awe of you and your holiness. And we recognize that all of us here are sinners. All of us, Lord, need to be saved by your grace. We thank you, Father, for the provision that you have made through your Son, Jesus, to save us through grace. We simply ask and pray, Lord, that you will wash us, cleanse us from all that is unlike you, and that through the process of your Spirit dwelling within us and us relying on your Word, Lord, you will cleanse us from all that displeases you. Father, help us all to understand and appreciate that all sin, whatever our particular issues may be, all sin is something that you want us to free us from and cleanse us from. So I ask and pray, Lord, you be with every one of us here today, Lord. Help us to take this word, this message, and to reflect in the quietness and the stillness of our hearts and minds. Speak to us all, Lord. Convict us, show us where we need you to clean us and to to glorify you. I ask and pray, Lord, that you'll be with us all now as we prepare to take communion. Fill us, Lord, with a right heart and a right attitude. May old hurts and grievances be, be dealt with, Lord, before we come to the table. We ask and pray, Lord, for your, an outpouring of your spirit here today as we participate in this sacred these sacred emblems of the bread and the wine. Thank you, Father, for loving us the way that you do. Thank you, Father, for all that you do for us, we pray. In your Son's precious and holy name. Amen.